0: Hello, and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's episode, we'll continue our immersion in the first three chapters of Ezekiel, focusing this time on God's vision for his prophet and how he prepares Ezekiel for the difficult ministry ahead. As we listen closely to what the Lord has to say, we'll walk away more prepared for our own lives, ministries, and relationships, too. Well, I want to cover some exciting news about the podcast before we get started here. The Rebind is now on iTunes and can be found on a number of your favorite podcast apps. A number of you have been asking about that, and I know this makes this um, way more accessible and practical. So give The Rebind a search in your favorite podcast listening program. See what pops up. So we're talking more about the introduction to the book of Ezekiel today. Last week we covered chapter 1, today we'll cover chapters 2 and 3, but remember that all of chapters 1 through 3 are a literary unit. It's meant to go together. So here's some highlights from last week that are important to remember for today. Ezekiel's introduction is all about this encounter the prophet has with God that prepares him and prepares us as readers and listeners for all the prophecies that follow in the book. Chapter 1 opens with a stunning, overwhelming vision of God portrayed through the image of a mobile throne chariot, thundering and ready for battle. There are these mysterious otherworldly creatures and symbols that depict the infinite and vastly superior strength and presence of the Lord. But all of that imagery is meant for more than just decoding a theology handbook, it's meant to communicate a pointed message. It's meant to hit us right between the eyes. The intended effect of reading Ezekiel 1 isn't that of an archaeologist excavating a small artifact so much as cranking your neck up to gaze at a skyscraper-tall tidal wave rushing towards you. People have done a lot of wacky stuff with Ezekiel's introduction, but when we did a little digging into how the text itself tells us it wants to be read, we realized there's these particular kinds of divine visions. They're what are called Merot in Hebrew and they punctuate the book at key moments. We get one of these at the beginning, one in chapters eight through 11 with the vision of God's glory leaving the temple and one at the end with a closing vision of God's glory re-inhabiting a redeemed temple, a redeemed land and a redeemed people. So the quote-unquote movement of God in Ezekiel, his quote-unquote showing up to save and to judge, are the backbone for the entire book of Ezekiel. That activity determines the fate of the people. It defines what matters in all of life, even. And when the people get overwhelmed or apathetic because of the lies they believe or the circumstances around them, God breaks in like a rushing tidal wave to overwhelm us with bigger, more important realities about himself and what he's doing. So that's where we're picking up today. See, Ezekiel's vision of God is shocking. It's, it's disorienting and reorienting, but it's not the only important part of chapters one to three. In fact, that vision of God is just the setup for God's vision for Ezekiel where he spells it all out in chapters 2 and 3. So let's take a gander. As always, we're going to have the text read for you here for your convenience, but if you'd prefer to study Ezekiel 2 to 3 on your own, feel free to press pause and pick it back up after the reading. Today's passage is read by Jake Bliss. From Omaha, Nebraska.
1: This is Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3, read from the New Revised Standard Version. He said to me, O mortal, stand up on your feet and I will speak with you. And when he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. He said to me, mortal, I am sending you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are impudent and stubborn. I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they shall know that there has been a prophet among them. And you, O mortal, do not be afraid of them, and do not be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns surround you, and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of their words." and do not be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, mortal, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. I looked, and a hand was stretched out to me, and a written scroll was in it. He spread it before me. It had writing on the front and on the back. And written on it were the words of lamentation and mourning and woe. He said to me, O mortal, eat what is offered to you. Eat this scroll and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. He said to me, Mortal, eat this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and in my mouth it was as sweet as honey. He said to me, Mortal, go to the house of Israel and speak my very words to them. For you are not sent to a people of obscure speech and difficult language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of obscure speech and difficult language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely, if I sent you to them, they would listen to you, but the house of Israel will not listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. See, I have made your face hard against their faces." and your forehead hard against their foreheads. Like the hardest stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not fear them or be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. He said to me, Mortal, all my words that I shall speak to you, you receive in your heart, and I hear with your ears. Then go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them. Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and as the glory of the Lord rose from its place, I heard behind me the sound of loud rumbling. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing against one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them that sounded like a loud rumbling. The Spirit lifted me up and bore me away. I went in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me, I came to the exiles at Tel Abib who lived by the river Chebar, and I sat there among them stunned for seven days. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Mortal, I have made you a sentinel for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give them no warning, or speak to warn the wicked from their wicked way in order to save their life, Those wicked persons shall die for their iniquity, but their blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their wicked way, they shall die for their iniquity, but you will have saved your life. Again, if the righteous turn from their righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before them, they shall die. Because you have not warned them, they shall die for their sin, and their righteous deeds that they have done shall not be remembered but their blood I will require at your hand. If however you warn the righteous not to sin and they do not sin, they shall surely live because they took warning and you will have saved your life. Then the hand of the Lord was upon me there. And he said to me, rise up, go out into the valley. And there I will speak with you. So I rose up and went out into the valley and the glory of the Lord stood there like the glory that I had seen by the river Chebar. And I fell on my face, the spirit entered into me, and set me on my feet. And he spoke with me, and said to me, Go, shut yourself inside your house. As for you, mortal, cores shall be placed on you, and you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be speechless and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, let those who will hear, hear. Let those who refuse to hear, refuse, for they are a rebellious house. The word of the Lord. So I hope you liked listening to
0: Jake's voice because you're going to hear more of it. Shameless plug for next week. We're going to interview the Bliss family on the Rebind, Mike, Lisa, and their son Jake for our April 1st of the month interview. You're going to hear some of their story and how a deeper study of the Bible has enriched their lives. You won't want to miss it. But we've got a lot here for today, as you heard in Ezekiel 2-3. This sudden shift has occurred. The spotlight has moved from the Lord Almighty to the puny little prophet Ezekiel. God addresses him in the power of his spirit. As usual, our goal in the podcast is to land on some key takeaways that this part of Ezekiel can give us as we try to live the Christian life today in 2020. But we can't just jump right to that. First, we need to do a little explanation, make sure we understand what's being said here. Then, we'll do a little synthesizing, sum up some of the unique contributions this makes to the Christian message. And then we'll be ready for our takeaways. So, first off, What's being said here? What's the point? Well, as with any part of the Bible, and especially the narrative parts, we don't want to look at the whole thing like it's a static chunk. We want to see it as a dynamic, unfolding conversation, a plot, and walk through each of its parts as it unfolds. I think we get this intuitively. I mean, what's going to give you a better understanding of a movie? reading a synopsis or watching it from the beginning to the end, spoiler free. Already in chapter 1, Ezekiel has been blown away by this overwhelming vision of God, so much so that he just falls flat on his face at the sight of it. But he can't just be a passive observer here. There's a key role God calls him to play. So chapter 2 starts out with that call, get up. Brace yourself and I will speak to you. Now, humanly speaking, this is pretty darn impossible for Ezekiel to just muster up his bravery and rise to the challenge of hearing God and fulfilling this mission. That's why, from the very beginning of that mission, the text makes it clear the Spirit enters, empowers Ezekiel, even just to stand up and hear the message that God is giving him. Over and over in the book of Ezekiel, God addresses his prophet as son of man. Now, what that means in the book of Ezekiel is very different from what Jesus means when he designates himself the son of man. And it's important that we catch that difference here. And the common Hebrew vocabulary, just normal conversation, calling someone the son of something was basically like a shorthand way of saying, You're characterized by the same stuff that this other thing is characterized by. A passage where you can see this really clearly is John 8, where Jesus accuses his unbelieving opponents of being sons of the devil. He's not actually saying that the devil literally gave birth to them. It's more of a kind of genus species thing, like father like son, identity marker, business card type thing. So instead of saying, hey, Ezekiel, listen up, the Lord constantly says, son of man. In other words, hey, human. In contrast to all the overwhelming otherworldly visions and realities Ezekiel is exposed to, he's not given the liberty of thinking more of himself than he ought to. We are just puny, little, limited human beings that this all-powerful, overwhelming creator of all is stooping down to converse with. Really puts things in perspective, doesn't it? But now what do we do with the fact that Jesus constantly calls himself son of man? Well, prominent figures in early church history interpreted that the same way. When Jesus calls himself the son of man, they thought he must be emphasizing his humanity Whereas when he calls himself the son of God, he's emphasizing his divinity. Not a bad thought. It could be something there, but there's a better, clearer connection. Whenever you see Jesus call himself the son of man, think Daniel chapter seven. It's worth a read this week if you've got the chance and will really shed some light on Jesus' self-understanding. And Daniel seven. That prophet glimpses this ultimate end-of-time vision, where verses 13-14 to say, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when the disciples asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming? And we see Jesus saying things like, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's Matthew 24, 30. Okay, so we realize, oh, Jesus isn't saying, look, I'm a human. He's using Daniel seven to shed light on his own identity and role. Very different from the way it's used in Ezekiel, right? Son of man in Ezekiel is a humbling, lowly, puny human title. Son of Man for Jesus is a glorious, exalting, Daniel 7, I am God and the Messiah title. That's why we went with the NRSV translation for our reading, where it translates Son of Man as O oh, Mortal. That's awesome. Just wanted to clear that up, but let's not make this too abstract, okay? Remember, we're focusing on the unfolding conversation and plot in Ezekiel 1-3. to You've got overwhelming, all-powerful God on the one hand, speaking to puny human prophet who can only stand because God's Spirit makes him do it on the other hand. And what's the mission? What's the message? Be still and know that I am God? No, not here. Fear not, for I am with you? No, there's a lot of fear going on here, and that's okay. What does God want Ezekiel to get out of this encounter? Mortal, I am sending you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels. All throughout chapter 2, it's hitting us over and over. These people are stubborn, both they and their ancestors, it says. That's important and will come into play later, that they're not just facing the consequences of their parents, how they messed up, But they're continuing the same problems themselves, which is why all this is happening. They don't want to hear this prophetic message. Like, they really don't, because they're actually opposed to what God wants to get through to them. And God says to Ezekiel, that's who I'm sending you to. That constant refrain of a rebellious house, a rebellious house, they are a rebellious house, It's like an ominous chime ringing for the rest of the book. But for Ezekiel, right now, the reminder serves two purposes. First, it's to prepare him for the difficult ministry ahead. And second, it becomes a foil for how he's not supposed to respond. God is casting a vision for Ezekiel to understand himself and his role, and like a good pastor, a good father, a good friend. God anticipates what's going to be challenging for Ezekiel, and he speaks into it. The people may not listen to my word, but I'm calling you, my messenger, to digest it. They may rebel, but you don't be like them. And when they batter you with cynicism and hostility, I will make you even tougher than they are. But then at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, there's one plot twist after another. Fearing and obeying the Lord instead of people is one thing. But what makes this digestion so somber and urgent is that the content is nothing but misery, single-spaced and double-sided. He's given a scroll to eat in this vision, but what's on the front and back are words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Like to read that in their job description, let alone eat it. But the plot twists keep twisting. We move from the scroll is filled with woe to eat what you find to eat this scroll to the scroll actually tastes sweet. All of it is disorienting, but that seems intentional. The bitterness of the whole situation is enough to undo any of us as God prepares his servant for a ministry of difficult messages. But there's something in internalizing that message, in internalizing God's word, there's something in taking in what he has to say, taking it to heart, that's ironically, paradoxically, sweet as honey. God continues to anticipate Ezekiel's objections, and he says, look, you're no Jonah. I'm not sending you to Nineveh or Papua New Guinea. This is your own people we're talking about here. The message will get across, even if they aren't willing to hear it. And when they're being impossible and hard-hearted, I'll personally give you the strength to face that. What I speak to you, you speak to these exiles. That's your job. And at that point in chapter 3, verse 12, the one long encounter that we read about breaks and the timeline moves forward. The same spirit that lifts up Ezekiel to stand in 2 2 lifts up Ezekiel out of the vision. And rather than the focused attention and power of the Lord being an encouragement and a comforting thing for Ezekiel, he actually says, I went in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit, because of it. He came to the exiles, but he just sits there, stunned, for seven days. So, side note, all this stuff that we're talking about on the podcast, about being overwhelmed by a vision of God and empowered by his vision for us, it's not automatic. It's not easy-peasy, and if you want proof of that, Ezekiel himself, the one who saw the vision firsthand, just sits there for seven days. Obviously, God knew what he was doing when he coached the prophet through the process and the ministry ahead of him, and that's where this somewhat more familiar passage about being a watchman comes in. God comes back to the prophet after those seven days with a more vivid way to remember Ezekiel's own identity and role. The Lord provides the prophet with a vision for himself, an embedded story of a watchman. And it serves as both a warning to us when we're tempted to resign ourselves to the difficulties of our mission, and as an encouragement in a sobering sort of way. The Lord himself will vindicate his servant, even though the world may see that servant as a failure. But remember, we got to think about this in terms of how it fits into the unfolding plot from chapters 1 to 3. The Watchman's story is a logical follow-up to the warnings of hard-heartedness and Ezekiel's disgruntled response. Though the people may not listen, That's not Ezekiel's job. That's not his responsibility. What is his responsibility is making sure they have something to listen to. And in that metaphor, there's the glimmer of hope that some will actually listen and turn and find life. So in the finale of chapter three, we get a rehashing, almost like a redo of what we've seen so far, almost like a okay, Ezekiel, let's try this again. The Lord takes control calls Ezekiel back to the valley. The glory of the Lord's there, like in the first vision. And again, Ezekiel falls on his face. And again, the spirit enters him. And this time, kind of like a transition to the prophecies and sign acts themselves, God binds the prophet, both physically and in terms of his speech, to make it clear when he speaks, he speaks for God. Out of God's strength, not out of his own weakness. And as a final note, the ominous chime rings once again. Let those who will hear, hear. And those who refuse to hear, refuse. For they are a rebellious house. Echo, echo, echo. Okay, thanks for staying with me through that. Hopefully that rehashing of the unfolding plot It's made things a little clearer, a little more vivid. But now that we've cleared up some confusion, what should we be drawing from that? What's the point? What does that have to do with the Christian message? Well, just be honest for a second and think about how confusing and uncomfortable that whole encounter was for Ezekiel and for us. Why would God call Ezekiel? Why would God call us? to live and proclaim an unwanted message to an unreceptive audience. Yes, we looked at Ezekiel's overwhelming vision of God and understood how that's important for us today, right? But remember, this is the other side of that coin. This is the other essential aspect of what Ezekiel 1-3 to is all about. This is part of that important preface to all the prophecies to follow. This is God's vision for his servant. This is what answers that nagging question that pops in our brain for the 45 chapters after this. The why is this even happening question. The how is this even worth it question. The question Ezekiel wrestled with himself like we read. Why does the book of Ezekiel even exist? Why would the Lord call us to live and proclaim an unwanted message to an unreceptive audience? Because the reality of his presence to save and to judge overwhelms the stubborn lives that we live by when they threaten to overwhelm us instead. Because God's stubborn faithfulness means he is not content to leave us in our stubborn faithlessness. He will make his word heard and known whether we choose to respond in a way that warrants his bringing justice or we choose to turn to him for deliverance and hope. Contrary to what many of this country's founding fathers believed, God is not a cosmic watchmaker, setting everything in motion and throwing his hands up, detached and disinterested. He cares too much for us. He cares too much for what's good and true and beautiful to leave us in what's evil, deceptive, and perverted. This is yet another reason why these three chapters are so important to the book. It's not just Ezekiel's vision of God that will carry us through the difficult ministry and message to follow. It's God's vision for Ezekiel, his prophet. The Lord's stubborn faithfulness outdoes the stubborn faithlessness of his people. He is intent on getting through to them, through Ezekiel. And not even just that. It's not about the results of Ezekiel's ministry because he explicitly tells Ezekiel, hey, a lot of people just won't listen to you. It's not just about the results, though of course the hope is that there will be results. It's that God will not leave his people in their illusions, even if they continue to reject him. 3.11 says, go to the exiles to your fellow countrymen and speak to them say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they pay attention or not. God is making sure that his word, his plan, his assessment will be heard. Through the prophet, he's making sure he will be known. And whether they know him in a saving or a judging kind of way, whether they know it now or later, he will uphold his gracious commitment to make himself clear to a people who willingly blur his reality. This is the kind of God that we serve today as Christ's servants, spreading his message and furthering his kingdom. The vision of God and God's vision for his prophet go hand in hand because his presence and purpose are what make the despair and resistance bearable. God's parental, pastoral, persistent coaching and rebuke that we saw is it's not just necessary and empowering for Ezekiel. It's necessary and empowering for us too. I mean, if it's difficult for the guy that saw the overwhelming vision firsthand, it's definitely going to be difficult for us. And if you think that this is just a harsh Old Testament thing, think again. Jesus Christ is the ultimate uncomfortable, overwhelming Alternative reality. While the Lord told Ezekiel, "Let those who will hear hear, and those who refuse to hear refuse," Jesus comes onto the scene and tells his disciples, "He who has ears to hear, let him hear." You can find that in Matthew eleven fifteen, Matthew thirteen nine, Matthew thirteen forty three, Mark three nine, Mark four twenty three, Luke eight eight, Luke fourteen thirty five. Okay, so not just an Old Testament thing, right? As if that makes it less important anyway. God's message, his assessment and plan for reality, it hits the clogged ears of stubborn audiences, yet he still persists with the message. Ezekiel was commissioned by God the Father to make sure his people have something to respond to, to break down the countless barriers that they put up and get through to them. And in Jesus Christ, he commissions the ultimate, probing, persistent prophet, making that assessment and plan clear, regardless of people's hardened response. And as Christ's disciples, we're called to follow suit too. Now, that's some of how Ezekiel 2-3 fits into the whole message of Scripture. Then what's the impact of that today? What difference can it make for us self-quarantined Christians anxious confused maybe a little desperate well there's a lot here in these chapters and so there's a lot that we can draw from and draw out as we think about the implications of God's vision for Ezekiel for our own lives we can focus on that section about the watchman where God sets out a metaphor for how Ezekiel should understand his role and responsibility but since that gets picked up later in the book in chapter 83 18, and it's really fleshed out there. We'll hold off for now on covering that in detail. Still, even here, there's this important reminder that we're not just speaking at people when we give witness to the gospel, when we talk to one another about God's word. We're intervening for them, and there's a weight to that. Worry about what you're responsible for, not what you're not responsible for, seems to be the message here. And in some ways, that's freeing and relieving, but in other ways, that's sobering and quite serious. Though a lot of people won't listen to Ezekiel or to us, that's not the concern so much as that they have someone to listen to. Sometimes, without meaning to, we can make evangelism all about adding numbers to the church keeping our churches alive, or we can talk about it like it's just another thing on the list of good Christian things to do, like reading your Bible, which you know isn't wrong. But these Watchman passages can help us to take a step back from that and realize, hey, this isn't just about the numbers or the duty. This is about God's assessment, his plan, his message for everyone. And it falls on us to intervene in people's lives, to step in with that message how they respond is on them but giving them something to respond to a faithful representation of God's message is on us. And again that's part of the motivation for this podcast, right? If we want to be good watchmen, good messengers, we need to get the message right, which involves knowing all of it, putting all the pages of the Bible back together. Okay, but we're going to stop there on the watchmen stuff and punt that for another episode when we get to chapter 18. As we've jumped from chapters one to two and three, we don't wanna separate those two aspects, Ezekiel's vision of God, God's vision for Ezekiel. It's the Lord's all-powerful presence and purpose that make the difficult mission bearable. There are a lot of ways that our own circles of influence line up with Ezekiel's prophetic audience. Post-Christian modern American society has heard fragments and summaries of the gospel over and over. And in a lot of ways, it's become hardened to it. It's not easy or comfortable or straightforward just going out and saying, hey, let me tell you about the Bible, or have you heard about Jesus? There are plenty of barriers to that, plenty. I still think Ezekiel had it harder, especially given the personal difficulties he's gonna face, but if we can see the connection between his mission and our mission, then I think God's message to us will shine all the brighter when we step into Ezekiel's shoes and hear what the Lord Almighty says. Stand up on your feet. I will speak to you. Mortal, I am sending you to stubborn rebels. Whether they hear or refuse to hear, they will know what I have said. But you, mortal, don't be like them. Open your mouth and digest this. Eat what I give you. If Ezekiel needed that coaching and still started out on the wrong foot, how much more do we need to sit in that coaching ourselves? I think it's worth praying through Ezekiel 2-3 this week in a really humble posture, seeing how the Lord reorients you, sobers you up, and strengthens you for the mission of spreading the kingdom of Christ. I know I definitely need that. It's easy to get comfortable, discouraged, let the path of least resistance determine how I respond to God instead of the other way around. In some ways, God calls us to the path of most resistance because his perspective, purpose, and support matter way more than the opposition we face from others and even within ourselves. Well, so far, this unpacking of the passage has been more philosophical than I intended. So I want to give you just some practical tips, you know, some suggestions of, of what I think we can walk away with after immersing ourselves in Ezekiel 2-3. to The first thing I think we walk away with is humility. Overwhelming, almighty, warrior, Lord, on the move, tidal wave, omnipotent, God, over on the one hand, and then us, puny little mortals here on the other hand. There are many things that God calls his people in the Bible that can inform our self-perception, our identity, heirs, saints, members of Christ's body. But here's another one to add to our vocabulary. Mortals, son of man, human. It really puts things into perspective. Yes, we are his servants sent on a mission, but it's his mission, y'all, it's, it's his message his power that gets us through. And when we think of our limitations and nature compared to his, makes it a whole lot easier to want to rely on him. So, first thing we walk away with, genuine humility, thinking of ourselves less, putting things in perspective of who we serve and who we're not. Second thing I think we walk away with is urgency, a sobering kind of seriousness. We're not just sitting there thinking, wow, what a big God and how, Small I am. He puts the spotlight on us too. He says, Stand up on your feet. I am sending you. It's a really tough world out there, and this is only going to make things tougher. But you have a job now, and you are responsible for it. Worry what you are responsible for. Don't distract yourself with things you can't control. No wonder Ezekiel needed the Spirit of God to lift him up on his feet. Hard to stand up to a call like that, isn't it? But it's there. And Jesus gives us similar sobering coaching sessions and warnings. Think about Matthew 10, 26 and onward where it says, have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So we walk away from Ezekiel 2-3 with humility, with a sense of urgency and responsibility. And one final thought, we actually walk away with relief too. Implicit in the message, worry about what you're responsible, not what you can't control, is the assurance that we don't have to carry the weight of how Others choose to respond to God. That doesn't mean we don't care, of course, or even that our ministry to people stops the first time they give a cold shoulder. But it does mean that God will be the one to say, well done, good and faithful servant, after we've served him faithfully. Whether or not our friends and coworkers all have this massive revival, whether or not, The only fruit we see from our work is some rotten tomatoes. And you know, that's actually freeing. That's empowering. We walk away from God's vision for Ezekiel with a clearer vision for ourselves. We walk away humbled. We walk away with a sense of urgency. And we walk away with a freeing sense of relief. The Lord's stubborn faithfulness outdoes the stubborn faithlessness of that mixed crowd. He is intent on getting through to them. and Not just that, it's not just about the results, he's making sure that he will be known. Whether the people know him in a saving or judging way, whether they know it now or later, God will uphold his end of the bargain. He will graciously make himself clear to a people who have willingly blurred his reality. This is the kind of stern but gracious God that we serve today, and this is the kind of servants that we can be as we respond to him with an eye towards others. The weight of that call is not something that we can bear on our own. We need the Spirit of God to carry out God's mission, just like Ezekiel did. So now, in light of that humbling, sobering, and freeing vision of God, As we take his vision for us to heart this week, I want to close by praying portions of the hymns Almighty, Invisible, God Only Wise, and Spirit of the Living God. Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, Most Blessed, Most Glorious, the Ancient of Days, Almighty, Victorious, Thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light, nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains high, soaring above. Thy clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. To all life thou givest to both great and small. In all life thou livest, the true life of all. We blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree, and wither and perish, but not changes thee. Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. The Rebind is made possible by the help of Andrew Horning, who handles the audio mastering and music for the podcast, and by the art contributed by graphic designer Adam Anderson, and by the continued interest of listeners like you. If you find these episodes helpful, be sure to spread the word and be sure to join us next week when we interview the Bliss family about their experiences learning more about the Bible. See you then.